Well, good morning. Uh, first of all, congratulations for all of you. You are all true diehards on this topic. Uh, we have a fascinating panel in that we've got uh, both real implementers of some of these technologies well before they were cool, well before there was an internet. Uh, the, uh, two of the countries were engaged in some of these uh, technologies. Uh, we've also got uh, some global experience as well as robust domestic, uh, domestic U.S. experience. Now, we have a challenge. <clears throat> there are five of us on this panel. We have till noon before you all vacate. Each one of us could filibuster and not even catch our breath for an hour on the topics that are, have been presented in a very, very rich conversation here. So I'm going to ask my panelists to be on focus and very specifically talk about what is the most important issue in an election, and that is the trust of the electorate and simultaneously the trust of the political class. Because those are not necessarily the same thing. The trust of the electorate, if they go in and vote, will their vote be heard? Will it be counted? Will it reflect their view? The trust of the political class, will they accept the results? Will they be good winners? That's easy. Will they be good losers? Will they look towards the process as to how to reform it? rather than how to upset it. These are very, very different questions. And as we introduce technology into the electoral process and move from paper and pen or stones or however the process was into something new, does it fit the culture? And does it fit the audience of voters and political leaders who have to live with the results? I am very, very privileged to have a Supreme Court justice who runs the election system in Brazil, one of the largest in the world, to my immediate left. Next to him, a former minister of informatics in India, which has the single largest election in the world and has had a proud democracy for 60 years. His, to his uh, right is a dear friend from the United Nations whose global experience is unchallenged in this space. And then at the far right, we have a member of the U.S. <laughs> Election Assistance Commission who was a superb professional in the Secretary of State of Ohio for many years. And those of you who follow U.S. politics know Ohio is always ground zero in terms of political credibility of the results of every presidential election. And so his office was tested and now the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, which was the American Congress's response to Florida 2000 has been high on the hit parade for abolition by the uh, Republican House of Representatives for a number of years. So very much in the crosshairs of this debate. If I can, I'm going to use the question as a moderator to say the issue is trust. Will the voter going into the polling station think his or her voice is going to be heard at the end of that process. If I may, I'd like to ask my friend from Brazil to explain how they answered that question. Yes, thank you, Bill. <coughs> it's a pleasure to be here. I would like to say thank you for Peter for the invitation. 
And uh, why in Brazil the people trust in the electoral voting machines? First of all, since 1932, the body that organized the election in Brazil is the judiciary branch, not a commission, not the executive body, nothing like that. It's the judiciary branch that organizes all the elections. Second, our laws are nationals about this matter, elections. So we organize the election nationally, not decentralized. It's since 1985, we began a data center, national data center, with the voters' registrations. All the voters are registered in the electoral superior court. And since 1996, we developed by our personal team, our IT team, the electronic machines. We don't buy in the market a solution. We buy in the market only the hardware, because all the software were developed by our personnel. So it makes it possible because the judiciary branch is an independent body. And the judiciary branch in Brazil is very trustful. And the, the electoral superior court are presided by a member of the Supreme Court. And we don't stay so much time there. We stay like president only two years and we rotate. And we have in Brazil 27 local courts and 3,000 magistrates in electoral system. But all of them, they are not permanent. They are from the local courts, they are from the city's courts. So we rotate every time. And it became the system very truthfully by the, by the people. And when we developed it, we did in pilot project. We began with one city in 1994, and after one third of the country in the 1996, two thirds of the country in 1998, and all the country votes in electronic machines since 2000. Even in the native tribus in Amazonia, for example, even abroad in your ambassades. Everybody in Brazil vote in electronic machine. And all the, all the development of the software are possible to be audited since six months before the elections. For whom? For all the political parties, for the bar association, national bar associations, and by, uh, for a prosecutor body we have uh, joined with us a prosecuted border, electoral prosecuted border, that they could audit all the system too. So since six months before the elections, we did a lot of permanent uh, hearings, and uh, all these parties could audit the system. In the day of the elections, there are observers, the parties could put observers, and at the end of the elections, the elections is one day, 
Everybody needs to vote in the same day in our country. So the elections begin at 8 o'clock and finish at 8, 8 o'clock a.m. and finish at uh, 5 o'clock p.m. And 5 o'clock p.m., when the, the elections end, we print it in isolated machines. We don't use we don't use web system. The machines are isolated. They are isolated. And when the the day finish, we print a receipt with the results of the ballot to the parties. And after that, the parties could confer it with the the, the tolling, the, 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 the final results in a total sum. So it's completely auditable. And after the elections, all the parties, we have a system that, that uh, could be audited to after the elections. So we have a possibility to audit it before the elections, during the elections, and after the elections. And we do. Uh, out, uh, a test, uh, an electronic test, who we invited in the years that we don't have elections, hackers to try to invade, to, to, break, to break our system. Okay. We invite them to try no. to break our system, our softwares, and it helps us to develop more safety softwares more secure uh, form to do the elections. And it, it permits that the, the frauds are avoided and that the people truth in the system. Because in the past, how the, 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 the panel before said, somebody said in the, the panel before, the problem is the count. Mm -hmm. The count vote is the problem. This kind of problem we resolve in Brazil. We solve this in Brazil. What we are discussing in Brazil now, it's the money influence in the elections and the abuse of the use of the state servers, uh, other things like that. In other words, the counting now in Brazil is not a problem. Terrific. Uh, first of all, I, I want to congratulate the justice. I've heard a lot of uh, innovations at panels around the world. It's the first hack fest on an election system that I've ever heard. Uh, India, you engage in the largest election in the world. You've got a very proud history of electronic voting and innovation. Would you pl please uh, give us your perspective, sir? Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> just let me give you a sense of what the numbers are. In the 2014 general elections to the Indian parliament, you had about 835 million enrolled voters. Roughly, we have a voter turnout of about 60 to 65%. Uh, as we speak, you have 330 million Indians on the internet. We have uh, close to over a billion mobile phones, uh, a tele-density of about 70%, lesser in the rural areas, above 100%. Uh, in the urban areas. So that's what the math looks like. Coming to electronic voting, like all good things in history, we stumbled upon it by accident. We were actually trying to surmount uh, a fundamental evil of ballot stuffing, because 
We had an endemic problem in some of our states where uh, muscle men or goons would go in and uh, physically take uh, possession of the polling stations, stuff the ballots, and which then would make the whole process completely redundant. So therefore, uh, we came up with this entire idea of electronic voting machines. The discussion started somewhere around 1989. We first experimented with it in 1998, and uh, in a provincial elections across uh, three or four provinces. And then 1999, 2004, 2009, 2014, we've essentially gone through an entire paradigm on electronic voting. Do people trust it 100%? The answer to that is no. Uh, there are questions which are asked all the time, especially by those who lose. But essentially, uh, <laughs> the reason why it's been successful is because people trust the institution which administers the election. Uh, we have an election commission of India, uh, which has a separate uh, place uh, in the constitutional arrangement or the constitutional scheme of things. And over a period of time, the Election Commission has been able to uh, essentially maintain and even augment its credibility. So therefore, you have a situation whereby, like in all other parts of the world, people don't trust their politicians, but still do elect them. But they do trust the institution uh, which runs uh, a democracy. Can, are these uh, elect, uh, electronic voting machines susceptible to hacking or being gerrymandered with? The answer to that is yes. It's been demonstrated time and again that uh, you can actually hack into an electronic voting machine and alter the results. The fundamental question or the, the break point is, can it be done on an industrial scale? Because when you are looking at uh, parliamentary constituencies in India, uh, you are looking at an average of about 2 million voters. So which means about 2,000 uh, electronic voting machines. So therefore, between 8 o'clock in the morning and 5 o'clock in the evening, can you gerrymander enough electoral machines in order to make, uh, impact the result? Uh, well, the answer to that, uh, till now uh, has not been uh, uh, has been in the negative is india ready to move uh, from uh, the electronic voting machines to voting on the internet the jury's really out on that and i'll give you two examples when i was coming to dc uh, my mother who's 77 years old and i gave that example in the morning at the breakfast also asked me, she says, why are you going to DC? And she's run all my elections, all the ones which I've fought. Well, I said that uh, essentially to try and figure out, can we move the entire voting paradigm in India uh, onto uh, the internet? So she said, it's a very bad idea. So I said, but why is it a bad idea? And she comes from that generation which has seen India's freedom struggle, which has seen India's uh, developmental trajectory over the last six decades. She says, essentially, because when you are voting in the privacy of your home, you are susceptible to intimidation. Uh, there is security in numbers when you actually go out and vote. So therefore, uh, if you're out at the polling station, because there are so many other people, and she didn't talk only about intimidation from political parties, which in certain parts of the world are very well organized, but even, say, family members, you know, trying to influence the elder or the younger ones to vote in a particular manner. 
And then my daughter, who's 18 years old, asked me the same question. She said, what takes you to DC? So I gave her the same answer. And she said, it's a very bad idea. So I said, but why? She says, because my vote, when I cast it on the net, can possibly be, be gerrymandered with. It can be hacked. And so I told her, I said that, look, but you do everything on the internet. You consume news on the net. You do various other things on the net. And uh, she's doing political science. And she tells me, she says, well, I put democracy on a different pedestal altogether. So therefore, it all boils down to a question of trust. Can you uh, evolve a system uh, on the internet, on the, uh, the, the, in, in the virtual civilization, which people would be able to trust with their eyes closed? Yes, they trust the institution, but if you need to move from the electronic voting paradigm onto, on which there are still questions being asked all the time to the internet, I guess the, the, the fundamental question is, how are you going to be able to make technology so robust that it answers the question of trust? I'm going to ask my next two colleagues to focus on one question, which, uh, or two questions. The first is both India and Brazil spent better than two decades developing their systems. And yet, in many countries that the United Nations works in, in many cases of election reform in the United States, we're dealing with systems that are supposed to be in play in the next election following perhaps the adjournment of the state legislature. The second issue of great importance is that neither country engaged in public procurements. They were not using vendors. Both countries had the public institutions in the case of Brazil, they have over 300 people in their IT department to make their system work. Whereas in many countries that the United Nations and IFAS work in, uh, they do not have that type of resource within the institution. In many parts of the United States, the election authorities do not have that resource. They have to manage a public procurement in a relatively fast fashion. And that sometimes becomes a credibility issue. Please. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. You have said what uh, I, I have Sorry to say. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I would like to start with the facts. As you know, the United Nations mandate is to provide assistance to member states uh, which don't have the capacity to organize elections. What we are seeing the past 10 years is that we are moving from the request focused on technical assistance to request focus on technology. Before, you, they used to ask for boundary delimitation, civic education, so on and so forth. But the past 10 years, we have many requests in which you have the request for technology. Why? Because there is the more and more the perception that technology is a kind of tool which can guarantee the trust among mm -hmm. uh, national state players. Why? Because usually in most of the countries supported by uh, United Nations, there is no trust on politicians, but more importantly, no trust in the institution. You may know that in some countries, elections are not organized by the Electoral Commission. They are organized by the government. And between the opposition and the government, there is no trust. And even when you have an electoral management body which is 
called independent. They are not in many countries because of the appointment of the members of the Electoral Commission. Mm -hmm. So there is no trust among the national stakeholders. And the perception is that by using the technology, they can avoid you know, fraud coming from the ruling party or coming from the electoral management body. But the problem we are seeing now is what you said earlier. First of all, uh, when you have countries like India, like uh, uh, Brazil, they have the, the ownership of their technology. But in most of the countries supported by the uh, United Nations, they have to bring not only the hard work, but they also have to bring the whole expertise to make it happen. Mm -hmm. That's why we have cases in which it works and others in which it doesn't. Nigeria and Mala <coughs> Namibia are cases. Namibia is a small country. Right. Nigeria is a huge country. But we can say that in the two countries, it was good to use technology, and it was one of the solutions you know, to, to make things happen. But in others, uh, it didn't work properly. We know what's happened in Kenya uh, because of the use of technology you know, for the compilation of the results. At the end of the day, what's happened and the acceptance of the results was not the technology, but it was more you know, this political. That's why the problem we have now, first, is the cost. Is it cost effective for all countries? Because you have many countries which have other priorities. How to deal with Ebola, how to deal with uh, uh, you know, many other priorities. And the costs, uh, somebody said earlier that it's not uh, expensive. I have a different view. And the cost is something we have to take into consideration, and not every country is able to do it. The second thing is the, the fact that it seems not to be sustainable everywhere. Because when you use 60 million, 36 million, let's say, take a country like Benin, which is a very poor country, using 36 million to buy you know, uh, the technology, and it was used only for the presidential elections. And when they come to uh, local elections, they have to update the, the, the voters list, and they have to go again through the system. So it's not always sustainable. That's why, and also the, the, pro, the issue of the ownership. Because when you don't have the ownership, when the, the, the electoral process should be uh, a matter of uh, national budgets, then you depend on not only vendors, but you can depend also on donors. And you have the more and more countries asking for assistance and asking for money, and you have the less and less money from you know, donors. So I will maybe stop here and say yes, uh, because of the trust or because of the lack of trust, there is the more and more a need to use technology, but it should be done carefully. Usually what we do is to take into consideration the context of the country and to make sure that it's not a kind of panacea. It's a tool, and as all the tools, it depends on the way it's used. That's what I want to do. And has Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you.
you're, you're positioned to go. You're all, all <laughs> set. Uh, thank you, and thank you for inviting me here this morning. It's humbling to be here and, and participate in this discussion. I think to, to kind of set the, the context of my comments is to share uh, who the Election Assistance Commission is, because I think it gives a perspective on, on uh, American elections in general. So the Election Assistance Commission is a bipartisan uh, commission created in the aftermath of Florida 2000 uh, and uh, Congress's passage of the Help America Vote Act. And we have one uh, simple job, and that's to serve as a resource to the state and local election officials that actually run elections in America. And so instead of kind of a centralized process like we've heard from from uh, this panel and before, uh, we have over 6,800 election officials across the United States of America running elections in a decentralized way. Uh, and I think that has a lot of benefits uh, and positives to it uh, and, and a lot of challenges as well. And so what the EAC does is test and certify voting systems, uh, collect data nationally to help serve as information to improve the election process, and then distribute best practices. And so as we look at voting technology and, and uh, election systems, our goal at the EAC is to, t to test and certify those systems, make the results public so that voters and election officials, parties, and others can have confidence in the systems being used out in the jurisdictions that have been tested and certified. Uh, so when we talk about trust, uh, one of the things I think that was uh, one of the real positive developments after the 2000 election is the increased attention and scrutiny on the, the democratic process in America. Uh, those election officials who ran elections uh, prior to 2000 would tell you that they got very, very little attention, very, very little scrutiny or press coverage. Uh, and then 2000 happened and they started to wonder who all these people were showing up in their offices wanting to know what they were doing, you know, uh, asking questions about the machines and the technology. And so uh, after 2000 and, and uh, the introduction of new technology, uh, one of the things that's taken place is this increased scrutiny and questioning about the, the infrastructure of elections. Uh, and so what election officials have done is opened up the process. Uh, and so what you'll see across America, I think today in many places, is, is an open discussion about how the process works. And a really good example about that to, to talk about trust is pre-election testing. Every office uh, in, in the United States, for the most part, that runs elections will do some sort of uh, public test of the systems prior to running the election. They'll invite the media, they'll publish the information on the website, and they'll share how the elections run. Uh, and that's not only to give confidence that the system itself works, so the technology, but in fact the people in the processes are in place to run the elections well. And so at the Election Assistance Commission, we collect information like this and, and share it uh, with election jurisdictions across the country so that more practices like these and more transparency can be shared. The other thing I wanted to focus on just briefly is, is this concept of trust. And, and you all, uh, I think, very correctly talked about IT security, right? Securing the software, securing the hardware, very critical, critical aspects. But I, I think another really critical aspect that, that's become a focus here in America is the usability of the systems. The, a system can't be secure if it's not usable. And so what we've seen across the United States with things like ballot design, uh, ballot layout, whether on touchscreen electronic systems or on paper ballots, is that if voters can't figure out how to use the system or don't trust that they're using it properly, they lose the trust in the system. And that has nothing to do with hacking the system or the security. It's the interaction of the voter with the system. And so one of the, the core developments that's happening across America right now with the election system, both the voting system itself, so the tabulator, but also the interaction with the process is election officials are trying to embrace 
uh, and give the voter an experience that they're familiar with. And so there's innovation across America, again, not with the voting, the vote counting itself, but the interaction of the voter with the process. There's more information available online. There's electronic poll books. There's online registration. There's uh, voter, uh, sample ballots that you can mark on your phone and take into the polling place and scan and have it pull up on your electronic voting system there. And so it's giving uh, voters a, a level of confidence because it's something they're familiar with and can use. Uh, and so there's election officials across the country embracing this kind of technology and, and kind of challenging themselves to say, how best can we serve the voters so that this is a process that is familiar and usable for them? Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on was the ownership because it's something that's becoming a, an emerging topic, I think, uh, in elections in America. Most jurisdictions in the United States uh, contract with a vendor of some sort to provide the voting technology uh, used uh, to run the election, uh, but there's kind of this bubbling up uh, of interest in, in having publicly owned uh, software. And the, the example I'll give you uh, is from Los Angeles County. Uh, Los Angeles County is in the process right now of designing their own voting system. Uh, Los Angeles County is the largest jurisdiction in the United States of America, uh, and the, the clerk in Los Angeles County has contracted with uh, a, a company to begin to explore how do we best serve the voters if we own the tabulation software and then we use a variety of vendors to provide the ballot in an interaction with the process outside of that tabulation software. And so uh, it's a very public process. All the information is available on Los Angeles County's website. But it's the beginnings of, and, and Austin, Texas is another one, so Travis County, Texas is also doing this. It's the beginnings of looking at what does it look like if we own the technology, particularly the tabulation equipment in this way. And so there are counties uh, across the United States and election officials, both at the state level and the local level, looking to embrace this public ownership of the elections process. And if nothing else, open up the process so voters are informed on how it works uh, how they'll be going, how they'll be voting, and expanding the opportunities to vote, whether it's before election day or interacting with it on their mobile device. Could before I go to questions, I'd like to ask our colleagues from uh, Brazil and India to sort of react to uh, the, the two past speakers on the question of it now being a shared system. Um, if there's going to be voting on the internet in Brazil, you're going to. You can't rebuild the bridge. You're going to contract out. You're going to have some sort of a vendor involved. How will the voters in, in Brazil and India, uh, will they continue to trust the institution? Will they, uh, aside from the, your 77-year-old mother and your 18-year-old daughter, how do you think the rest of the population will react? Justice? So in Brazil, we don't vote in the right. internet. We are now studying in, for the future because mm -hmm. the future is coming someday, I think. <laughs> Tomorrow? <laughs> yes. <laughs> someday in the future it will be possible with this new generation that uh, I think uh, that this new generation will more truthfully in the Internet, beside his daughter, <laughs> said <laughs> different. But uh, what uh, you use in Brazil? We use isolate machines. Mm -hmm not working in web system. And uh, why, why the people trust it more than the institutions, more than the, 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 the system? It's because in the past, we have problems mm -hmm. with the human, human intervention mm -hmm. in counting voters. Mm -hmm. vote. mm -hmm. So with the electronic system counting the vote, like we did 
with isolate machines, printing the result immediately, and uh, uh, we have a software that uh, mixes the voting time, mm -hmm. so we, we can't, you never could know who voted the who. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With this software, it's impossible to know it. Yep. So this system makes everything very truthful to the people, and the time that this, we disclose the, the telling results is almost immediately, okay. two hours after elections. And it's very, very, very fast. Mm -hmm. So the, for, for the, the, the political troubles, it's very important because, because in the past in Brazil, we have a, with papers by lots, two weeks, almost in semi seats, uh, like one month of discussions, recounting votes, and uh, we, we had uh, a lot of problems with uh, the, the truthful in the process. Mm -hmm. With the electronic machine, machines, we peaceful all these political disputes and make it, it more uh, tranquil mm -hmm. for everybody. And mm -hmm. uh, all, all of this make that the Brazilian system uh, be very, very truthful for the people. My friend? <coughs> well, the fundamental question is that uh, would people trust a system whereby the hardware is owned by either private companies or, for that matter, regulated by government in the case of routers and uh, internet gateways and the transmission towers, etc. And uh, more importantly, uh, the root servers which run the entire uh, internet mm -hmm. are either located in the United States of America or one in Europe. Uh, would uh, people in India really uh, trust a system mm -hmm. uh, which uh, carries on the entire democratic exercise on this paradigm? My answer to that, frankly, would be a no. So therefore, uh, if we have to move to the next level, whereby uh, you develop an alternative system that uh, in addition to voting by electronic voting machines, uh, you can also vote on the internet, something which we are currently, um, or the Election Commission is engaged with uh, creating a platform yeah. for the Indian diaspora to vote. Uh, I guess you will have to create uh, an entire intranet, an electoral intranet, which would then have to be firewalled. And the ownership of that intranet would need to vest in the election commission. And it would only possibly be used for this limited purpose of uh, then, uh, you know, then, then running elections. And the other difficulty is that the election commission of India only runs the elections to the national legislature and the state legislature. Mm -hmm. The elections to the local legislature, and we have three tiers of elections at the local level, are really run by the state election commissions itself. So I guess uh, you'll need to, uh, to really uh, have some very serious application of mind as to how you would be able to create uh, an infrastructure in which people can have trust because uh, if, let us suppose, my vote is going to be routed through some server in Los Angeles and then come back and be counted uh, in, uh, in, you know, by some electoral official in Delhi, it's too much of a 
long time to travel. You know, mm -hmm. a lot can happen in between. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't think uh, people are going to be very comfortable with that idea at all. And that's why the standalone process, which yep. uh, the justice referred to, whereby the machine is standalone, it is not connected to the net, and therefore then it is physically carried to the center, and then the data is downloaded. I guess the standalone um, paradigm uh, gave it the, 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 the kind of, uh, or, or gave people the confidence uh, to move from the manual ballot to mm -hmm. the electronic voting mm -hmm. machine. I think the next step is going to be a huge leap of faith. Yeah. Okay. Please. Yes. Well, uh, okay. Okay. Yes. okay. No. In the United Nations, we don't have many requests for electronic voting. No. Right. It's usually focused on two things the biometric voter registration. Mm -hmm and the compilation of the results. Uh, many countries uh, we are assisting are not yet at this stage of uh, electronic voting. That being said, the problem raised by uh, the, the predecessor are, is the same even with the um, uh, voter registration. I want to give concrete example. Congo, DRC. In Congo, DRC, you have the list which is done in the country, but the server is in Belgium, even for the, 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 yeah. the voter registration. Right. And first of all, you have this problem of ownership, but also sometimes there is a suspicion mm -hmm. uh, because of the relationship between Belgium and Congo. And sure. some people are raising, why do we have all the uh, the data, mm -hmm. you know, the da personal data of people in another country. Even having the personal data within the country is already a problem of human rights for some people. How come that you are capturing all the data and putting mm -hmm. it in the server? Mm -hmm. But having it in another country, sometimes uh, it raises you know, some problem. The other one is in my office, I have somebody who is from Japan. And she told me, but Japan is one of the most developed countries, rich, but with high technology. But we are voting with ballot papers. Right. How come that the countries that are requesting you know, assistance because they don't have capacity are asking for the highest? Because my country, we, we, don't use, you know, we just use ballot papers. Right. We just have to think about the level you know, of trust, the level of development, and also take into consideration the fact that the most important thing is the trust, mm -hmm. the trust in the system, and what can be done politically for the acceptance of the results. Because you can have high technology without having good results, but you can also uh, have it and it can improve the results. So just, just very quickly, my fellow commissioners refer to me as the human filibuster, so I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> I'll but watch it. Yeah, yeah, just throw something at me, it'll be fine. Uh, you know, as I listen to the, to the other panelists talk, and you, you mentioned Belgium and the Congo, you know, in America, you know, that's I think of uh, Hamilton County and Cuyahoga County in Ohio. Well, Hamilton County doesn't want to run elections like Cuyahoga does, mm -hmm. and, and they take that very seriously because mm -hmm. it's a different culture even within a state, let alone mm -hmm. across states. Mm -hmm. So as we look at trust and innovation, you know, the, the way it's traditionally worked in America is the two points of innovation are in the areas of serving military and overseas voters, right. and then western states. And there's a culture of trust in western states. So the prior panel referenced vote by mail. 
Uh, if my friends in Oregon and Washington would have heard that conversation, they would have picketed and, and charged the state. They love their vote by mail there because there's that culture of the trust in the system. In Ohio, we never go all vote by mail because the attention, the swing state nature of, uh, of the state and the, the expectation of multiple interfaces uh, to, to vote. And so as we look at you know, uh, modernizing around at least an American uh, election system, it, it all comes down to the culture of that state and even sometimes the county uh, and the nature of that and then the investment, obviously, uh, which uh, in many states and counties is very low in the election infrastructure. That's terrific. Let, let's go to questions. We've, we've had, uh, yes, sir, in the back. And why don't you queue up someone who's number two, because we've got over here. Number two is over here in the front. Okay. You with the uh, my name is Alejandro Pareja. I'm from the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, we work with the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. And I see the, the panel has focused on uh, two uh, aspects of the electoral process uh, regarding transparency and accountability. Uh, Madeleine Albright also mentioned inclusiveness, which regards to voters' registry. And in some of our countries with very weak institutions and uh, very low development, uh, we have a problem of, um, of having a good uh, voters registry with, uh, without deaf people voting and uh, mm -hmm. encompassing the whole country, even those regions that are not, that have no connectivity, that are very poor, sure. etc. So my question is, how can technology help to uh, guarantee that the voters registry uh, includes all the people and only the people that should vote? Thank you. Could I ask my colleague from the United Nations? Yes, He's yeah. probably had more experience with that. Yes, uh, as you know, uh, you have the civil registry and you have the voter uh, registration. You have to, you know, in many countries uh, we are supporting, usually the problem is the lack of civil registry. And our advice is to more and more, when we use uh, technology, to make sure that it starts with the civil registry. Because when you have a good civil registry, it's easier to extract what is needed according to the electoral law, whether people who are 18 or you know, so on and so forth, to build the, uh, say the voter register. So it becomes less uh, expensive, it's cost effective, and you don't have to, uh, to, to, uh, to worry about you know, sometimes fraud, because when you are doing the civil registry, you are not thinking about elections, and people just go and they are registered. So what I wanted to say, usually we uh, advise people to have in their country uh, the, a good civil registry. That's the, the problem we are seeing in a country like Nigeria. What they did was good maybe, you know, by having ID card, you know, for, but it was not a civil registry. So right. next time they have to go again. But if it was a civil registry, they just have to update the voters list using the technology until it becomes effective and sustainable. We talked about the Amazon yesterday. Yes, yes. Uh, I think the system in Brazil is inclusiveness, is transparent, and is uh, accountable, like I said. And uh, we have in Brazil now 
in last year, the last elections, 200 million people live in Brazil. And in the voters registered, we had, uh, last year's, 143 million people registered. Uh, uh, 73% of all the populations are registered like voters. The register is compulsory, like the voter is the vote is compulsory too. And uh, we uh, we started to uh, do a biometric identification in 2008, and uh, in last uh, three years, we improved this biometric identification in the Amazon. And uh, already my city in the São Paulo county, São Paulo is the most developed state in Brazil. I don't have. I, I don't have a biometric identification yet, but uh, the natives in Amazon, they did. They did the biometric identification because we like to begin with this, uh, this place that are mm, mo most uh, difficult to access. And uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the electronic machines, all the natives in Amazon vote in electronic machines. And we, we put police stations in the tribus, in the tribals. We, pu we put police stations and we transmitted the results by, by satellite uh, uh, communications. So it's uh, incredible for most part of the people that the first vote that we receive in Brasilia is from the native people because the transmission is more fast by satellite than by cables, safe cables. <laughs> question. I'll ask the other half of the panel to start with your question. I'm uh, Massimo Tommasoli from International Idea. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the uh, issue of trust that was addressed in the first panel and also in this panel uh, can be unbundled uh, at least at three levels. We have the obvious uh, more uh, important paramount uh, level, which is the trust uh, uh, in terms of public perception. Uh, and it has to do with the political culture, definitely. Then there is a context uh, level that is related to uh, capacities uh, of the election management bodies, the social political context, and also, and also the time factors. And thirdly, there are all the operational te technical context related elements. Now, uh, how are those related? In particular, a question to the two uh, country experiences. You started with piloting certain activities, and, um, and then you had also a time element which was related to building familiarity with the system, which was also addressed uh, in the US uh, context. So how did you link the time that is needed in order to pilot things, and that, that is needed for building familiarity, which is much longer. India is on first. Let me start by uh, answering a, a question which the earlier questionnaire had asked about inclusiveness. See, we have a very great, another difficulty in India. It's about exclusion. And the reason why I say that is because if you look at the, voting uh, the voters' registration process in India, uh, it is absolutely open. 
anybody can vote, anybody can uh, come and register, even if he's a non-Indian citizen. So therefore, uh, the uh, electoral officers go to your residence, uh, they just take down the, the names of people who are above 18 years, and everybody becomes a voter. Now to compound that, we have been issuing this biometric card to every resident of India, mm -hmm. you know, essentially to enable a lot of other financial services. So you do not have to be a citizen. You just have to be a resident of India to be eligible for that card, which is called an Aadhaar card. Mm. Now, essentially, you have a, a, a paradigm whereby you have your name in the voters list. You have this card, which is not a proof of citizenship. It's a proof of residence. But uh, because there is so much of pressure on the election commission, during uh, the time of elections that, well, if I have an Aadhaar card, you know, I have an identity, I should be allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. You have a situation, especially in our border districts, whereby a lot of non-Indian residents are actually coming and voting. So, therefore, you know, what we are grappling with at this moment is actually a question of exclusion. How do you get only Indian citizens to vote and not other people who are illegal immigrants or who may have that card. So therefore, it's a little different situation. But coming back to this question of uh, how did we transition uh, from uh, a pilot project to a far more uh, expansive uh, use of technology? I guess uh, what happened in 1998 when we introduced it in three provincial elections and by and large, it was not in all the constituencies uh, in that particular province, but in a select number of constituencies. And when the results in these constituencies were actually uh, synonymous or were in sync with what the broader result was, you know, people developed a kind of faith in the technology that, yes, uh, there is robustness to the process. And I guess that allowed the uh, transition to take place. But yes, uh, there is a caveat out there that uh, notwithstanding the fact that it's been very successfully now experimented over four elections, questions still remain. There is a very large body of people in India, an informed opinion, which says that uh, you need to take the, uh, you need to set the clock back to manual balloting. And so you have two contradictory paradigms because the Supreme Court of India at this point in time is hearing a public interest litigation whereby they've asked the election commission to create an uh, electronic platform to allow the diaspora to vote. Mm -hmm. Now other people have intervened into those proceedings essentially to say that, you know, forget the electronic platform. Let's question the very basis of electronic voting per se. So. So, so the, 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 the point I'm trying to make is that even though we may have transitioned, uh, the fact that questions keep coming up, and this is very good in a democracy, that people uh, keep uh, revising the thresholds which they may have put in place, I guess helps to make the system more robust. And that is what gives the, the confidence. Matt, you, you've got all of those issues. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, a, it, it's an excellent question. and. Uh, it, it's one that election officials across America struggle with because uh, they want to introduce new technology and begin to get that trust in the technology. But one of the challenges with piloting is those are still real votes, right? You're still rolling out and counting actual ballots. And so what you see, I think, across the board 
in election technology is that uh, change is evolutionary, not revolutionary, right? Uh, that, that in fact, they slowly introduce one new uh, it, uh, innovation on top of the other in order to judge the, the impact. And I'll give you an example that, that's actually going to be done uh, this year in Colorado is there's uh, Colorado's trying to find uh, a statewide system or at least uh, trying beginning to experiment with it. And so they've got seven counties in the state of Colorado that are going to try a new voting system that will utilize commercial off-the-shelf products with software loaded on there. So tablets, iPads, stuff like that. Well, they're just starting in seven counties to begin to ask, is this something that the citizens of Colorado can adjust to, can identify with? And this is a state that votes almost primarily by mail. So we're not even talking about a large number of uh, Colorado voters that will use it. But it's, it, this is how it, uh, you get that kind of change to, to uh, you know, my, my friends in uh, Maryland, I think, got a tough tough uh, introduction here this morning when talking about the paper ballots and the change to voting systems. Mm -hmm. One of the real challenges they have there is uh, the voters of Maryland are going to walk in and go, what do I do with this piece of paper? Because for years they've been voting on a touchscreen. And so that level, typically election officials will tell you, it takes about three election cycles for voters to get comfortable with whatever the change is, whether it's an e-poll book or the voting system itself. And so uh, an election official's job uh, is to limit uncertainty. That's what election officials do, limit uncertainty. And so if a voter comes in and is uncertain, whether it's with the registration system or with the voting system, um, that, that limits the trust and, and begins to call that into question. And so it's, it's a slow process. Okay, the last question is going to go to a woman in this audience, because that's 50% of the electorate and better than 50% <laughs> yeah. of the audience, and none of you ladies have had your hand up. So someone put your hand up, please. <laughs> All right. We got two. Let's go. We'll, we'll do two women's questions here. It's appropriate. All right. Well, I, I got the microphones first, so I'll go. Um, and you are? I'm Tammy Patrick with the Bipartisan Policy Center and formerly on the President's Commission on Election Administration. Yes. And I have to say, I've been sitting here, I have a little something in my craw. So um, I'm trying to figure out a way to put it into an actual question. So it stems from this. For about a year, we toured around this country, mm -hmm. hearing from election administrators about voting technology and the challenges that they were facing. Because at that time, we didn't have any commissioners on the AC to put forth some new standards to get new items on the market that election administrators might even want to purchase. Earlier this morning, there was a comment about the cost is not a question. And I would say that that is the biggest misstatement we can possibly um, say when it comes to voting technology in this country right now, because there are very few states and jurisdictions that are able to purchase new equipment like Maryland. They're the rare ones. So I would like to know, I mean, when we, when we talk to state legislators, they say the money's not coming from us. When we hear from Congress, the money's not coming from them. Local administrators in this country they say, we go to our boards, they don't have money for us. Some local administrators have been socking away money and they're having those funds swept when they get to a point where they may actually be able to purchase new equipment. So the question I have is, what do we do, regardless of what is out on the market, how do we get the money to be able to purchase new equipment when the equipment that's being used in this country is now 10 plus years old? And think about for the, the other countries in the world, if you knew that your infrastructure is starting to fail, and when you talk to administrators, they will tell you, I can't get parts to replace, 
I can't get certain things. They're buying stuff on eBay to try and keep their systems running. And that's why many are shifting to vote centers. They're shifting to early voting. They're shifting to ballot delivery by mail to enable to stretch the equipment they have and hopefully get through 16, 18, and in some cases all the way through 2020. So when it comes to funding, how are our different countries funding this, even something like your federal assistance commissions? Okay, why don't we get your question and, and then I'll turn it over to the panels. I, I look forward to finding out where the money is. Hi, my name is Ann Russell with World Data Insights. Uh, I'm coming from more of a bit on both sides of things, having been a former elections observer in Haiti and also having worked in technology for the last 10 years. And I'm curious, how do you think that technology as it's kind of emerging and coming out would better help you to be able to measure these changes over time? You want to start, Matt? Yeah, I'll start on that one and not the funny one, because if I had an answer to that, uh, the EAC and election officials across America would celebrate. Uh, it's a great question, and it's one of the emerging uh, topics, emerging issues in, in American elections today, is the use of data to analyze all kinds of metrics, whether it's uh, voter turnout uh, or system performance or uh, vote counting and assurance, post-election auditing. Uh, and so one of the, the huge projects underway uh, that I think was brought up on an earlier panel on a global level, but in America, is the development of a common data format so that these systems can actually share information across the process and we can begin to analyze it. And so election officials in the last uh, four to six years in America have gotten pretty good at breaking down and analyzing their data. And there's projects like uh, the ERIC project and, and the cross-check project where we're focused on voter lists. And then there's projects like post-election auditing uh, and data analysis that, that uh, localities have done about who voted, when they voted in the early voting process or on election day to begin to say, where are we getting our best bang for the buck and, and what's best serving voters? And so I actually think of all the, the innovations that's happening, at least in American elections today, the use and culling of data to help inform and improve the process is perhaps the most important and the one that's, that's surging the most uh, currently. So I, I love the question. It's awesome. Yeah, United I'll, Nations is rich, right? It will be with for the funding issue but uh, not related to the United States, but in the world. This is one of our biggest trends when it comes to <coughs> the electoral assistance to member states because of the use of technology. What we are seeing now, let me give a concrete example like this. It's like when you have hundreds of dollars provided by donors, because many countries we are supporting, they rely on donors. So you have $100, they will use like 50 out of the $100 for the IT now. And then you need experts. So you will use maybe $25. So you have $75 of donors' funds used for the IT. But in elections, you need funds for other aspects of the electoral process. That's why the question is, who is going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. They are asking to member states to provide, you know, to, to fund their elections through their national budget. But they can't. That's why they go to donors. 
So it has become, with the introduction of uh, the, uh, the new technologies in elections, it has become a very big problem because when you get the funds from donors, then not only it's not sustainable because you need to come back again for the next cycle, but also donors have a kind of fatigue. You know, you have so many countries asking for, for IT, and there is a fatigue of donors. That's the situation we are facing. Well, I think uh, the funding question is uh, extremely relevant in Germany. And uh, I would only put it down to the cost of democracy. That uh, if you believe that uh, the system is robust, it has integrity, <coughs> and therefore there is a certain cost to it, well, then that's the cost of democracy. And uh, in India, uh, since the first machines that we still continue to use uh, were built way back in 1989 or 1990, uh, which uh, makes them almost, uh, almost 25 years old, and they have been kind of uh, adding new machines and not really uh, renewing them, at some point in time, this question would then definitely come up when there is going to be an overall uh, uh, overhaul of the machines or you'll have to junk the old machines and replace them with new ones. But as I understand it, and I'm not an expert in this, but what the Election Commission of India has been putting out repeatedly is that the cost of replacement is going to be much less than the cost of uh, paper ballots. Uh, and I'm talking about the physical cost and not the environmental cost. And uh, essentially it is not even uh, half of what uh, you would spend on ballots for a particular election, and this can actually go across many election cycles. So in, in that sense of the word, the funding question has not really come up uh, in India. Number two, because of the trust which people have in the election commission, which administers and runs the whole process, if they ask for money, parliament gives it without question. In Brazil. In Brazil, the judiciary <coughs> branch has your own budget. And we prepare the budget and we send it to the Congress. Of course, the Congress needs to approve. But on uh, the other hand, the Congress even approve our budget. So, uh, and the budget in the electoral court is for all the bodies of the electoral system. We do the prospect of annual budget to our, our superior court, to the local court, and to the municipalities' judges. So it's easy to use, manager our budget because it is in, in our, our manager. So it's easy to do. We don't have problems with budget in Brazil in this system. You just, want to say just you don't a, have a problem uh, with the budget no, in the United we have, States? We have, I, a colleague of mine in Ohio, and, and actually you triggered this thought for me because I think it's the argument you're making in India, and, and it's, uh, I guess, a shorter way to say it. A colleague of mine in Ohio, when making budgetary argument, used to say, if you think a good election is expensive, you should see how expensive a bad one is. Yeah. And that's the challenge, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, of course, in the beginning, it could cost a lot, uh, a lot, uh, a lot. but with the... Uh, uh, passing the years and the elections, the cost is lower. And in the last elections, for example, the cost by one vote in Brazil, it uh, was something 
like 2.5 dollars okay. per vote. First of all, um, let me concur with the uh, observation of the uh, Election Commission report that the United States is hopefully not going to have a disaster in uh, the next presidential election, but I, I, I th I'd concur that we are on the precipice of another 2,000 somewhere, and it's not because we haven't been warned. And, and that goes to the general financial issues of this space around the world as we move from very old-fashioned, labor-intensive ways into technology to solve certain political problems or to just have government more online than in line, um, it all costs money. And the money has to come from somewhere against competing priorities. Uh, it's my privilege now to first of all thank the Atlantic Council for a terrific, terrific, very rich morning of discussion. Secondly, thank Smartmatic for yet another contribution to this intellectual discussion uh, in, in an area of public policy that I don't think gets very much attention. And finally, thank all of my panelists for a terrific job. Please join me in thanking the panel. <laughs>